Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The city of Vladivostok, Russia, at the very eastern end of Siberia, had a population of approximately 800,000 people in the year 1998. It's the same distance north of the equator as is central Oregon and Rome, Italy. It's close to the borders of China and North Korea. Vladivostok was closed to everyone, including Russians, until the early 1990s. Two Americans, Hallie Brady and Mike Brady, of Potter Valley, California, worked as school teachers in Vladivostok, Russia, for two years until the summer of 1998. In this archive edition of Radio Curious, originally broadcast in July of 1998, we first visit with Hallie Brady and then with Mike Brady and talk about their experiences in Far East Siberia. I understand that Vladivostok is small in territory, even though there are 800,000 people living there. Can you describe the city for us? Well, the city is uh, a city of, of hills, and uh, it, it's on a peninsula, and many people say that it, it could be like San Francisco. It has the, the same up and down quality. It's, it's got a lot of greenery. But one of the main differences is that uh, the houses there are the typical Soviet blockhouses. What does that mean? That means that they range from five stories to 12 stories, typically, and they're huge concrete blocks the, with windows and apartments in that uh, all look very much the same. How big is the average apartment in these buildings? Actually, very small. Um, most people live in what's called a two-room apartment. That means that there might be a living space and a bedroom uh, with a small kitchen and bathrooms, and a bathroom, because typically the toilet room and the bathroom are two separate rooms. But the living space is very small. Many times families of three will live in one room. And uh, they do this by making their space movable. The beds fold up, the tables fold out, and so they change from, from a, a living to a bedroom in the same space. This must have effects on the personal boundaries and the personal space that the people have and, and expect from one another. It does, and I think that this is one of the reasons why people tend to spend a lot of time outdoors whenever the weather's nice. And as soon as the sun comes out, the people pour out of the buildings. But the whenever seems to me to be the operative word because uh, the uh, waterway that leads into the city freezes over for six months of the year, and it's pretty cold there, is it not? It's very cold in the winter, and what makes it seem even colder is the incessant wind. Because it's on a peninsula, it's on the ocean, the, the winds are constant and they're either you know blowing out of the Arctic north or coming switching and coming from the south. But in the wintertime it's always cold. So what does this do to the uh, personal relationships of the people? Well I think it, it, it really puts a lot of strain on people and families have to have to learn to deal with each other in, in these very small spaces. I think they find excuses to, to, to leave, to go out, even in the wintertime. But families, I don't know, it's just very different because you can have families of four or five living in a very small space. They seem to get along fairly well, but um, 
they can't they just can't get away from each other also housing is not easily found and new housing is not cheap so that many times families are forced to live together even after the children are married and new families have to live with old families or after people divorce they still have to live together this is true we have heard of, of several cases where people officially were divorced and emotionally and in, in every other way but they still were living in the same household the city was closed until the early 1990s no one could go no one could leave this is generally true with the exception of those of course who had the privilege people who would ride on the Siberian Railroad for instance uh, would ride in cars where the windows were completely sealed off from um, Habarovsk which is north of Vladivostok about 400 kilometers which is about 200 no 400 miles which is about 800 kilometers and that was the last stopping off point for people what do you and mean? Which direction? North. This is north. The, the, plane, or the train from Vladivostok goes north to Habarovsk, and then it starts the eastward journey, or the westward journey towards Moscow. And it takes about two weeks on the train to get to Moscow. No, actually it takes a full week, seven days. But the, the ride to Habarovsk is a 12-hour train ride. And uh, that was the last stop that people could get off. From there on, the windows were closed off. People could not see and when they were the train station the end of the Siberian railway in Vladivostok is right at the at the uh, the shipping uh, the Vauxhall uh, for the ships so people were escorted off the train and onto a ship and that was the only way that they could go through Vladivostok to get off the um, off the coast and in you know off to Japan or wherever else they might be going what was being protected by the old Soviet Union well, uh, Vladivostok was the major uh, seaport for the, the army and um, also the nuclear submarine. So it was the base for, for all of this nuclear, um, the ships, the building of the ships, the, um, the secret um, development of, of the submarines. And so it was considered just a very important part of that aspect of, of Soviet security. Here in the United States, we're used to being able to uh, obtain all kinds of goods and services in stores and enterprises. Uh, can you compare what is available in Vladivostok to what we have here in California, say? Well, in terms of individual items, many, most things are available there uh, to one degree or another if you're willing to pay. But in terms of a, a volume, amount, it's not anywhere near. There is not a single store in Vladivostok uh, that has the same amount of groceries as, as a small 7-Eleven does here in terms of volume or variety. Is it the same self-selection here uh, as that we have here or the, there? Generally not. In Vladivostok there are about three or four stores that you can go into and pick your own things off the shelves. And these are brand new stores that uh, have all sprouted up in the last two years. Previous to that, there were none. And nobody had ever heard of a, a shopping cart, for instance. Uh, people there stand in line, and the lines are very formal. You have to know which way the line's going. If you're not in line, you do not get waited on. And you take your turn. And uh, people tend, it's very interesting, people tend to line up where there are lines. And, and go to the kiosk that has the longest line. 
there must I think there must be something in the in the thinking or their experience that maybe that one has the better product or the better deal but it was not my experience always how would you characterize the spirit of the people there's been a major change in their form of government in the past uh, seven or so years it's interesting it depends on who you talk to some people are absolutely angry at the change they feel like they are ripped off cheated that life was so much easier and so much better under the Soviet system because they were taken care of and everything was available everything was there for them and they were taken care of now with the more of a free market system the the people before were equal in their poverty but now what's happened is that we've, we've got our, our economic layers developing. So we have people who continue to be poor, people who have become very, very wealthy, and a few people in the middle, the developing middle class. Is there an, an expectation that uh, people can participate in government or control government? We have, in, in our country, we have varying answers to that question. Um, I think some people think so, but most people don't. Most people have a very passive attitude about government. Typically in elections, maybe uh, a fourth to a third of the people will vote. And most people feel like they have no say, it's not gonna make any difference anyhow, and uh, have a very passive attitude when it comes to government. Do you think that's characteristic of um the Russian people in general at this time? Or is it because Vladivostok is so far removed from the central powers of Russia? It's hard to know for sure, not having been in Western Russia. But I think that it's, it's both. I think that part of it in Vladivostok in particular is there's so much infighting between the local city government and the government of the Krai, which is like the state or, or area government. And um, the governor, of the of the area and the mayor of the city are constantly uh, fighting with each other, sabotage, sabotaging each other's efforts instead of cooperating, working together. And so people see this as as a major problem. And then when you involve the power of the, you could say the mafia, but many times it's it's simply the it's that, but also the the previous communist people. Uh, the, the people who were in charge just changing hats. Now it's no longer Soviet, it's no longer communist, but the same people are often in charge. The same uh, people, the same persons. Same persons, yes. How about the children? What, is the, what do you see the next generation of Russians as, as having? I think this is where I feel the saddest because I think the children have suffered a great deal in this changeover. You know, always change is difficult. But in this case, so many of the support systems for children have disappeared. And um, so children have not enough to do many times. Unless parents are, are able, uh, have the time and have the financial support to take a real active interest in their children, the children seem lost. They don't have activities. They spend too much time on the street. But that's true here too. It is, but it's in a different way there. I think it's partly because um, parents, parents seem lost, children seem lost. There aren't activities for them. There aren't things. Uh, before, for instance, the Red Guard took the place of 
of many of the, the parental activities. Uh, schools had after-school activities. Uh, they were state-supported. There were many sports and activities. There were many athletic clubs. Um, kindergarten was provided free for all children or, and preschool because it was always associated with the workplace. Many of these things have fallen by the wayside now and oh. not been replaced. Hallie Brady, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Um, <laughs> of an interesting, well, I have been reading um, a book by uh, Kaim Potok uh, about a family in Russia and uh, how they have uh, experienced the just the living and the the. Uh, it, it's a, it was a Jewish family and how they, they uh, part of them survived and part of them didn't. I've also read a book about a young Polish girl. Now, I am terrible about names and I, I the read The first book context. sounds like it was Gates of November by Chaim Potok. There Portal. you go. That's the one. And, and the second book was a, a, a child's book about a Polish girl who, who lived in Siberia. And both books gave very different views about life in Russia, but both were interesting. Hallie Brady, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Hallie Brady also observed a significant difference between the demeanor of the Russian people of Vladivostok on the street and in private. In private, she found them to be much more open and friendly and wonderful and generous. Mike Brady was with her uh, for the two years that they and their two teenage sons were in Vladivostok. He has some interesting experiences with the Russian banking system. Mike Brady, welcome to Radio Curious. Thanks a lot. The Russian banking system, um, I understand it's different than uh, the way money is used to negotiate mm -hmm. trade here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is. Uh, Russians, of course, have always had banks, but only recently have they, have they had banks that uh, resemble a Russian, or uh, excuse me, a Western bank like we would have here. This is all new to them, so they're still figuring it out. Uh, their taxes are exorbitant. They realize that they are in tremendous debt with a faltering economy and have to raise a lot of money quickly. And they do this by uh, trying to extract it from the citizenry, from businesses. When you say exorbitant, what percentage? Well, I'll, get, I'll, I'll explain that to you. Uh, um, for example, we have a certain number of employees. We have uh, teaching assistants and language teachers and guards at night. And all of these Russian nationals um, have to be paid by Russian law through the bank. We cannot pay them cash. They have to be paid through the bank. In order for this to ha happen, we wire money from the United States into our bank account. We can't deposit it under our contract with the Russian government. The money all has to come from out of the country. It goes into our bank account and we, through a very complicated system, pay out from the employee's income, their paychecks. We pay into nine separate pension fund, medical insurance, all kinds of accounts. For each employee? For each employee. And, and when we, you say we, you're talking about the school of which you were the director. Right. And our Russian bookkeeper, who is the only one who could possibly keep up with this really Byzantine system. So 42% right off the top goes into nine different accounts. Then the account is the bank extracts 12% for their services. 
then an additional percentage that equal that adds up to uh, 71 percent of the money we put in the bank is extracted. The last fraction is what the employee pays when they withdraw the money from the account. So of their paycheck, 71% disappears. They don't get it. This is why widely throughout Russia and in Vladivostok, of course, people are paid under two accounts. One is the system I just described and the other is cash under the table. This is the only way Russian people can survive. It's their, their paychecks are, are minimal, and when the bank gets done with them, they're just minuscule. Is the form of currency the ruble, or is it in another yeah. national's currency? Ruble is the, is the, all banking activities, all exchanges by law have to be done in rubles. The Russians have just now uh, issued a new set of money. They've dropped three zeros, so now a thousand rubles is one ruble. And uh, this, of course, adds another dimension to the complication. So what, are the, what is the fallout of this form of um, banking system, this form of, of business trade, into the everyday life of people? Well, what it, what it does, well, it has many manifestations. And the one that strikes me the most is how quickly people discover ways around it. As I mentioned, it's everybody's paid out of two different sets of ledgers, and this is the way Russians survive. And this is the way they deal with all government, uh, virtually all government regulations, the new regulations that have come down in the last few years. They just find ways around them. And the more extreme the laws are, the, the quicker the people are to discover ways around them. And what it does is just increases that notion that the government is something out there to, to be dealt with, not to look forward to for any help in their personal lives or in the, in the, the comfort level of their environment, but much more as something to be careful of and to, to be dealt with. How about the healthcare system? That's run by the government certainly is. Um, uh, the rule of thumb in Vladivostok was it's to be avoided at all costs. Even uh, just, if you're ill. Yeah. Everybody I knew who, well, of course, that means expats, who could afford it had uh, medevac insurance. Uh, Korea is just two hours away. And they have excellent hospitals. And I'll give you an example of an experience I had. I had a kidney stone. I've had these in the past, and I knew what to do. And that is you go to the hospital and you... Um, have it checked out and you get a large dose of some sort of pain-killing medicine. Well, which is what I did. And I went to the hospital called the Thousand Bed Hospital. That's the name of it? That's the name of it. And that's how many beds they have there? That's the or approximate a, figure, yeah. A percentage of the beds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and a large percentage of those beds are occupied. In this massive hospital, there was exactly one doctor on duty. And she was the last remaining doctor, and she virtually lived in the hospital so she could be there all the time. And this is because doctors are paid by the Russian government, and the Russian government doesn't pay doctors for whatever reason. Back to the banking business. They have no money. So doctors would go months and months without being paid. And uh, as a consequence, they find other things to do. They become cab drivers or whatever it takes. Every Russian does many jobs to put a living together. Well, I understand that um, many people who are supposed to be paid by the Russian government are not paid, yet they continue to work. This is unbelievably common. If you work for the Russian government, you can, and you're not in the military, I'm not even, not even sure that's true. There are many fractions of the government that just don't get paid. School teachers, for example, railroad workers, coal miners, uh, the medical 
professions just are not paid or are paid once every two or three months and then only a fraction of their salary. And the question, the obvious question is, of course, why do these people continue working? Why don't they just do something else? Well, in Russia, you don't just do something else. It's very, very difficult. You have to put that together yourself. There are no jobs advertised in the newspaper. And if you take your foot out of the door, in other words, if you do not report to work, if you quit, then you lose any possibility of any gaining of gaining any of that to any of the back pay. Exactly. It just disappears. And everybody knows this and that's part of the game. This is how they keep them enticed. This is how they keep them coming back to work every day. Well, how about then uh, other aspects of government service or government services uh, like running water and electricity and roads and postal systems? I didn't cover this with my wife, with Hallie. Okay, no problem. Um, I can only speak to you and everything I say to you, Barry, is based on my limited experience on the Russian Far East. Russia is a vast country, and I'm not sure that conditions that I'll describe to you prevail over the entire country. Uh, I know that as you get further west towards Moscow, things get better. But in our city, Vladivostok, this last winter, there has been a drought. The city could not come up with a solution to the problem. Their reservoir capacity wasn't great enough. They depend on summer rains, which didn't happen last summer to any reasonable extent. And so this entire winter we were on water rationing. Now you have to understand that all water comes to you in Russia in two forms, hot and cold. You don't heat your own water, it comes hot from boiler plants in the city. This is common throughout Russia. Our cold water would come for two or three hours every two days. When it came, was it potable? It was alleged to be, but that's that's a risk. And since the public uh, public health system is such that you can't just run down with a bottle of water and have it checked, you have no idea. So the cautionary person, of course, boils and filters water. All the expats I knew did that. And the consequences of um, you have cold water a couple of hours a day and mm -hmm. hot water. No, no, a couple hours every other day. So that means when you hear the toilet filling, that was the sign, you could hear it starting to spit and gurgle. You ran into the bathtub, you pulled the plug to let the dirty water out that you had been saving because you took a bath that day or the day before. And that means you heated the water, I can talk about that. And then you immediately ran another tub full of water. At the same time, you threw a load of wash in the washing machine and you got it going. And if there were dishes to be done, you did that. And of course you filled up all your water jugs, we had two, well, approximately five gallon, 20 liter containers, and that would hold us from one time to the next. A few times though, the water did not come on. The one of the most aggravating aspects of this whole business is there's no regularity and no fairness to it. So Rich people got water, poor people didn't. Very simple. So the water would, uh, could come on when you weren't home and you just miss out. Absolutely, happens regularly, or it could come on at two in the morning. And you hear it and you jump out of bed. And if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. The winter before, they had great electric problems that were all based on the coal mines to the north not producing coal because the coal miners weren't being paid. And so uh, rather than the 50 box car or, or, or uh, coal cars a day coming into town, they were half or less than that number. And they just weren't generating enough electricity for everybody to have electricity. So we would be shut off all the time. Did uh, that affect the pollution? Yeah, there wasn't near as much. Uh, the air clears up remarkably when they stop firing up the boiler plants. Of course, the 
flip side of that coin is it gets cold. And what did people do? Put on a coat? Yeah, of course. That's exactly what you do. Um, Russia in the area in which we lived is not nearly as cold as we imagined most of Russia to be. We lived in the down there in the banana belt in the far south. It never got more than 20 below zero and uh, didn't stay that way for more than a few days at a time. The, the important factor in Vladivostok is the wind. It's very windy and the chill factor is remarkably cold. And it's, as we were saying earlier um, with Halley, it's at the same distance from the equator as is central Oregon and Rome, Italy. Exactly. It runs just, just like Roseburg, Oregon and Rome runs right through that same line. Uh, so the reason for it being so cold there? Is the currents coming down from the polar regions along the coast. Just look at your globe and you can see all those little blue arrows pointing down along the coast of Japan. That indicates all the cold currents and makes for the cold winter. See, just the reverse of, is, uh, of that is why the West Coast is warm and not locked in ice every winter. It's because of the... West Coast of the United States. Because of the spinning of the Earth. Well, I, I, it's, a, it's a complex dynamic. There's a lot of things going on there. Do we want to go into this? <laughs> How much time do you have a blackboard? <laughs> um, issues of the Postal Service, uh, safety on the streets... Vladivostok is reputed. It's, I think it's, it's, the current talk is about 10 years out of date. I think a number of years ago, it took the police a while to reclaim the, the, uh, the city and get it back under control. But now I felt absolutely no, I never felt danger, not at all. I've um, lived in other parts of the world, and I, in Russia, I felt completely safe. Did you see or sense that feeling for other people uh, who are not expatriates, for the Russian people who were there? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, the average Russian on the street does not feel um, as fearful as the average Los Angeles resident, say. Russians, though, uh, reacted quite strongly to this new impulse of fear that they felt in the early 90s. Now apartment doors are no longer wooden. They're now solid steel. And I mean, you know, like quarter inch or a three sixteenths inch plate steel and have one tiny hole in which certs a very complicated key system and with peepholes and everybody has them. We had one in our, we have them installed on all of our doors in our building. Well, Mike Brady, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio <laughs> Curious and uh, in the half minutes that is left, if you could tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately. If you want to read about the history of Russia uh, and you want to really have a current understanding of why it is the way it is, the book to read is David Remick's Lenin's Tomb. Um, he's a Pulitzer Prize. He won a Pulitzer Prize for that book. He's a uh, writer for the New York Times. Excellent book. Tells you everything that you want to know and a lot more about uh, Russia and why it's the way it is. Lenin's Tomb by David Remick. Mike Brady, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks a lot. Hallie Brady and Mike Brady are two school teachers from Potter Valley, California, who taught in Vladivostok, Russia for two years until the summer of 1998. Mike Brady recommends the book Lenin's Tomb by David Remnick. Hallie Brady recommends the book the Gates of November by Chaim Potok. Also in the Archives edition of Radio Curious is an interview with Chaim Potok about his book, The Gates of November. <laughs> <laughs>
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.